We're going to continue on our study today in James by hopefully understanding what the author has as instruction for, from and for the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 2. We will be reading and studying the 26 verses that are in chapter 2, and I believe they will be uh, best suited for us if I break them down into two sections, verses 1 through 13 and 14 through the end of the chapter 26. All of this chapter comes down to what I think is two subjects. One is faith and the other is our response to that faith. So I think our objection here this morning is to understand what it means uh, to have faith and then what are the right and wrong responses to our example of faith that we will qualify by looking and seeing what God's word has to say about these issues. See, I think we all could give examples of faith. We have faith in many different things. I think of the ice fisherman when he sees that first ice and he has faith willing to walk out on it to get that first catch of fish. Or the soldier that has faith in that parachute and is willing to jump out of a completely good plane. Or the working parent that has faith in their daycare so that they know that they can go to work and their children will be safe and taken care of. These are examples of faith, but really is not what we're talking about today. We're going to be talking, and hopefully, about our faith in God and, our, and, and it will increase and be better understood by us and our response in faith will be right before God. And I also believe that no response is also a response. We'll be talking about that more. Please follow along now as I read from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, so show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If a man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and says, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor, to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme and, and, on, and the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, and are commit, you are committing sin and are con, 
convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As we take and look at these verses, I want to think of this as the sin of partiality. This is a corrupt practice uh, that is addressed and it is a respect for persons based purely on externals. That's what partiality is. Here, the partiality that's being shown is by appearance. And what comes along with that partiality and appearance is also a presumption of wealth. But other partialities could also apply that weren't mentioned here. It could be because of race or gender or age or national origin or some others also. But before there is any even explanation and instruction uh, about the partiality that is here, the topic comes to faith. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. James's words are to the believers in Christ Jesus and not to unbelievers. And as a side note to that, how can we as believers expect unbelievers to have any other conduct other than what they have? They have no knowledge of Christ. Ken Ham, who is part of Answers in Genesis, has said something that I always thought was interesting when he was talking about creation. Because he said, you have to have the right perspective on the subject in order to understand. We look at things through the perspective of the Bible. And what he said about creation was, when you're looking at creation, you have to put on your biblical glasses. It has to be through the lens of God's word. And that's what we have to do today with partiality. The only reason that Christians can see things the way that we do is because God has enlightened our hearts and the Holy Spirit lives in us. Apart from that, we would be the same as those in the world, the same values, see things the same. But I think also we have to remember that we have to stay humble because nothing that we ever did would ever gain God's favor that he should have worked that miracle of faith in any one of us. It came to us as a gift. Humility is key. Even when we look at those that are still lost in their sin, we must have a love for them and a willingness to spread the gospel to them. But I think also, we have to remember that Christians fail also. We sin. We can have partiality toward others. I think that's one of the reasons that James is pointing that out to the church here today. He's saying 
This is happening, brothers, and it can, should not be. But everything is based on our faith in Jesus Christ, and that means we have submitted and embraced the doctrine of Christ himself. We have submitted to the law and the governing of Christ in our life, and he is Lord over our life. James reminds us by the words of praise that he gives to that Lord, the Lord of glory, that we should never think of anyone or anything higher than what we think of God himself. We would be giving that glory to someone else. Isaiah 48 verse 11 says, My glory I will not give to another. If we choose to do that, we are choosing to sin. Only to God goes that glory. And even when we think about that, in a church there might be a beloved pastor. If you've ever looked at God's word and studied it in writings that that men, that God has put into the minds of men and women, godly men and women that can understand and interpret, those things help, helps us to understand who he is, and those people can have quite a following. We can become very affectionate for them, but we should never give them the glory that should be to God and to God only. So, our faith is in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, and we are to fully submit to him. Now we have the sin of partiality described and cautioned against, and here's the setting. There's two men. One is well-dressed, one is not. They enter an assembly. And I think we need to understand what this assembly is. I don't think it's exactly like what we're doing here today, an assembly of worship, even though we in this assembly could be guilty of partiality happening as people have come in. But this assembly is said to be where those that have disputes among believers come and the assembly hears what is going on and tries to have some kind of order put back into situations. Now when that happens, those that are hearing in that assembly also have authority to make jurisdictions and rulings over those that are coming in to have their cases heard before the assembly. Now I think the beginning, the, the wrong conduct begins when we see the word you in verse 3. You means you brothers. And what James says is, you show partiality to the well-dressed and give favorable attention. James says, you have become judges with evil thoughts, verse 4. How can you decide any matters justly when you have already shown partiality based on personal appearance? That's what James is telling them. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you you." Shall you judge your neighbor? 
See, these people that were coming to have their situations heard before this assembly, they have already been wronged by somebody. Now, those that are hearing the testimony from them, if they already are showing partiality, they're again being wronged by the people that are there to do justice for them. The second time already, they have been wronged by individuals. This is exactly what Amos was speaking of in his book of prophecy as God led him to tell Israelites, this is your sin. This is how you're treating your own people. And it's going on here today, James said. Here is the greatness of the sin of partiality. It is not only in the injustice leveled against mankind, but also we have set ourselves up against God. We judge according to unjust estimations, our conclusions, how we think. We have corrupt opinions, which is what we form with the information that we have to make a decision. We prefer outside pomp before inward grace. We cannot look at the heart that is inside of an individual. We have, our, we have shown ourselves contrary to God. We are contrary to God. We are contrary to the very nature of God. And I'm telling you folks, in opposition to God is not a place that we want to be. God has chosen as heirs of his kingdom who he wills by his perfect and holy nature. Is the problem here that we don't understand that only God has the right to call to himself whoever he chooses? James says it is if we show partiality. And as a reminder, we are told that the actions of the worldly, the wealthy and great, I want to qualify what I mean by the worldly, wealthy and great. Last week in James 1, we, talk about, we spoke about the wealthy among brothers. There are wealthy Christians. These that we're speaking of here are those that are out in the world that have some type of authority. Maybe it's coming by their wealth. How have you been treated by them in the past? Are those who have so little regard for either you or God? That's what James is telling them. These same people are the ones that have shown partiality to you. We have seen the undue respect that we have for some people and the opposition with God that it brings. We are now shown how the matter may be mended. There is a right way of handling these situations. It is the work of the gospel ministry to not only re reprove and warn, but also to teach and to direct. First Colossians 1 verse 28 says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present ourselves mature in Christ. In verses 8 through 13, we are reminded we have the law to guide us in our conduct toward all of mankind. James was not just pleading for the poor 
at the expense of the rich, but rather the scripture teaches to love all of our neighbors. And how far back does that law go? Our conduct toward our neighbors? I'm not saying that this is the first time, but Leviticus 19:18 says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is coming from the first king of Israel, God himself. It is his royal law. We think about Israel at that time. They looked around themselves and said, we want a king like they have. Those kings made decisions what was best for the king. The king of Israel at that time made decisions and showed him his law that brought honor and glory to him and were always for the good of his people. They were royal law, kingly law. You can't get a greater direct opposite to the law to love others than to show partiality towards some others. If we really needed a reminder of the working of God's law and how God expects his people to conduct themselves under the law, James puts in two more points of the law. He says it also speaks about adultery. It also speaks about murder. And it also says, if you fall short in one area of the law, you are a lawbreaker in all of it. James directs Christians to govern and conduct themselves by the, by the law of Christ, the law of liberty. We again saw that last week in, verse, or in chapter 1, where Christ is the law of liberty. He is the one that has set us free. But this law of liberty in Christ will teach us to not only be just and impartial, but very compassionate and merciful to the poor, and it will set us free from undue regard for the rich. Verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This, sums, this verse sums up the implications in verses 1 through 12 and leads us to the faith without works part that we will be seeing in verse, verses 14 through 26. This is central to God's law that you do, do, do to others will be done to you in the judgment. Rewards for good and punishment for evil. Also mercy triumphs over judgment Believers' acts of mercy, caring for the poor and the hurting, are vindicated at the judgment. Mercy is a, is a requirement for believers. We reflect the mercy of Christ that he showed us. It is his mercy working and living on us that is required of us both to will and to do. We move to our second half of scripture that we have in chapter 2 this morning, which is verses 14 through 25. I believe it can be summed up by saying, faith without works is dead. That's not a real original statement from me, 
Probably many of you people in your Bible have under this heading of Scripture exactly that. Mine does. Faith without works is dead. There's been much said about James and how he seems to contradict Paul's uh, by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of works. Ephesians chapter 2, and in Romans and Galatians, he speaks of the same. God's word does not contradict itself here or in any other doctrine of truth. Both writers, Paul and James, state the same truth with somewhat of a different uh, explanation. Our study this morning is in James and that is why I will be specifically speaking of James and how he explains faith and the response to, the, to faith, which is works. Please follow along as I read verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for this life, what good is that? So also, by faith, if it does not have work, works is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the devil, the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was alive along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It is the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out uh, by another way for as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead James speaks of works done in obedience to the gospel as proper effects and fruits of sound believing in Christ and also, he presents that faith in the gospel as the only hope to save and justify us before a holy God. This same faith that comes to us through the hearing of the gospel that has convicted us of our sin, that has made us turn to Christ in his atoning work on the cross as the only thing will pay the price and make us right before God. This is a saving faith. James says a faith without works will not profit and cannot save us. Works done in response are evidence of a changed heart. I read again verse 14. 
What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? For a man to have faith and to say he has faith are two different things. Notice what James said. He does not say, a man has faith without works. He is not making that statement. A man has faith without works. And the reason that he can't say that is that is not a supportable argument. His statement is is seeing a brother and a sister in need. This is how he proves what he's saying. They're poorly clothed, lacking in food. The wrong response is to acknowledge the need, but do nothing to meet that need. There's no response. There is no works. Like I said earlier, even no response is a response. Even in that no response, what it shows and is a response to is there is no faith driving any need for that person to think that there should even be a response. We're taught to compare a faith standing by itself without works and a faith that has evidence by works. In verse 18. So think about a true believer, a person that has faith and works, and a boaster of faith which has only a statement, but there is no works. The true believer says, you make a profession and I say and, and say you have faith. I make, such a, I make no such boast. I let my works speak for myself. I will let all see how my works flow from faith and are the true evidence that it exists. This is the evidence of faith that we always see spoken of throughout the Bible, whether it is in ourselves or in others. This is also the evidence according to which Christ will judge on the last day. Revelation 20, verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book according to what they had done. Matthew Henry would write, How will those be exposed then who boast of that which they cannot evidence? Or who go about to evidence their faith by anything but works of piety and mercy? Our faith is evidenced by our works, our response. James wants to give us four examples. There's two examples of faith without works, which are coming from demons and foolish people, and two examples of faith, which are Abraham and Rahab. Demons have a faith that is bare speculation and that of knowledge and knowledge only. They believe there is a God, but stop there and trust in themselves. 
they tremble. They tremble, but not out of a reverence to God like believers do, but out of hatred and opposition to God himself. They don't believe God. They don't believe that God is powerful and almighty overall. They don't realize that they are already defeated. They believe in themselves. Those who may say, I believe in God, I believe in God the Father Almighty, just like it says in the Apostles' Creed, and that's all they have is a statement. There is no distinction between them and the demons. They do not have a true faith, and they will face the same judgment on the last day. Unless, unless you are like a believer who has given ourselves to God as the gospel directs, who love him, who delight ourselves in him, and who serve him, which unbelievers and demons do not, they are the ones that have a true faith. They are the ones that will be known by their fruit. But also the foolish condemned person we are taught that the one who boasts of faith without works is to be looked upon as the one who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Their faith is useless, as in the ESV that I read. The King James Version says, their faith without works is dead. So is their spirit, so is their profession of faith. So now let's contrast that lack of faith and no works by a faith that has a response to it, the faith that is validated by works. And the first example we have is Abraham, the father of the faithful, and the prime example of justification by faith. James speaks of the good works of Abraham, which are not to be separated from faith as justified and saving. The faith of Abraham was a working faith, producing a work of obedience to God, showing such self-denial that we cannot even imagine. He was willing to follow the command of God himself to offer up his own son. Now there would be those that would say, that work was never completed. He never followed through. Therefore, it was never a work to be done before God in the first place. But because the offering was done in his mind, in his spirit, and he had resolved to carry that act out, God accepted that act as complete. And it was fully performed and accomplished before God. The testing had happened, and he was found faithful. A second example of justification by faith with works was that of Rahab. Abraham was one renowned for his faith his whole life. Rahab is one known for her life of sin, whose faith looks to be of a lower degree. This tells us the strongness of faith will not do by itself, nor the lowest be allowed to do without 
works. Rahab believed the reports that there was a God in Israel that led their people, and he was the mighty God, and she believed. But what really proved her faith and her sincerity was her actions. She was willing to take the messengers and hide them and keep them safe, and also to lead them to safety before anything that could, ha- could happen to them. See the, how the faith, the, the, see how this faith transforms and changes sinners. And there is a response to that faith, and that's called works. Rahab is an example of where great sins are pardoned. There must be great actions of self-denial. James brings us to the instruction to to his instruction on faith and works to a, a conclusion in verse 26. James's own conclusion, I read for you verse 26. For as the body apart from works is dead, so also the faith apart from works is dead. The best of works without faith are dead. They show nothing but themselves. It is by faith that anything we do is really good in obedience to God or has our eye to God or our aim at his acceptance. The most plausible profession of faith without works is dead. Faith is the root. Good works are the fruit. We must see to do it that we must have both. Or if we do not, we must question our own faith. As the early reformers would say, and I think we do well to remember the same, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Let's pray. God, we pray that we never fall into the snare of sin of partiality that we know that all your creatures were created in your image, uh, that they bear the likeness of you. And Lord, may we show an appreciation for all. Lord, may we also understand that there are those that are still deeply lost in their sin. May we have compassion for them. May we show them the grace of the gospel message. May we never see as the world sees. May we always look through how Christ has shown himself to be faithful, where the lowly of this world was who he would call to himself, that he would embrace, those that the world would shun, would have no part of. He was the one. It is our example, and we pray that we continue to know and understand that. Lord, may we always be led by our faith in Christ Jesus, who has given us the liberty of the gospel. But I pray also, Lord, that we respond accordingly, that in all that you have given us in this life, all that we are is always given and done to give honor and praise to you and to you only. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. 
and we continue to worship you and praise you this day together. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.